Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we will be looking at birth stories from the unique perspective of a surrogate mom. Susan Fuller has had three children of her own and has been a gestational surrogate seven times. Her stories include two sets of twins, two C-sections, three water births, two home births, four V-backs, three inductions, and four unmedicated births. Stay tuned to learn more. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by the first eight days of being a mom, a day-by-day manual on taking care of the new mom as well as her newborn. Get a 10% discount by going to thefirst8days.com slash birthful. That's with the number eight, thefirst8days.com slash birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mamas and mamas-to-be. I want to thank you once again for all the love you're giving the show. And here's a quick reminder that it's super helpful if you can rate the show on iTunes, even if that's not how you usually listen to it. So to do that, go to birthful.com slash review, click on the view and iTunes link, click on ratings and reviews, and give us as many stars as you think we deserve. And if you need more help figuring that out, there's even a video I made, a screencast, screencast, so that you can see the step-by-step. So all it takes is one link and three clicks starting from birthful.com slash review, and I will be forever grateful. So today we're doing a different kind of birth storytelling because we have Susan M.Z. Fuller here to talk to us about her surrogacy pregnancies. And Susan struggled to get pregnant with her first child. And while researching fertility treatment options, she came across this idea of surrogacy. About a year later, she and her husband did end up getting pregnant without intervention. But the idea of surrogacy stuck with her. And within 20 minutes of giving birth for the first time, she told her husband, I can't wait to do this again. Um, After completing her family of three children, Susan pursued gestational surrogacy as a way to help others achieve their dreams of parenthood and as a way to continue enjoying pregnancy and childbirth without expanding her own family. So Susan is a seven-time gestational surrogate mother who has delivered nine surrogate children over the course of 12 years. Her relationships with the intended parents have ranged from a distantly cool business transaction to intimately close and rewarding. She writes about her surrogacy experiences at surrogacybydesign.com. Susan, welcome. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So when I was looking through your bio, I read that your surrogacy experiences include two sets of twins, miscarriage, stillbirth, a home birth, a water birth, and two cesarean sections. I feel like I almost want to say, and a partridge in a pear tree. I mean, <laughs> right? Yes, that, that's pretty accurate. It's quite the gamut. It's, it's This is a remarkable thing because you have such a unique perspective on the birth process. Tell me a bit more about what got you into surrogacy. Uh, Well, um, as you said in that great intro, um, we had had some trouble getting pregnant the first time. And the the reason that we were infertile is that I wasn't ovulating. Um, So it wasn't a problem with my uterus. Um, so 
once I was able, once I started ovulating, in fact, the first time I'd ovulated in uh, many years, I conceived our first child. And then my subsequent conceptions were very quick and easy. Um, so for the fact that I had struggled a bit with infertility didn't uh, have an impact on my ability to be a surrogate mother. Um, but while researching different options, um, infertility treatment options, I did come across that idea of surrogacy. And while I didn't actually consider that it was a, a good solution for us, I did. I was kind of intrigued by the idea. Um, and like you said, it, absolutely true story. Within 20 minutes of delivering my first child, um, I was just, you know, on that amazing post-birth high that that many women experience uh, and just was absolutely exhilarated and said, oh, I can't wait to do that again, in which I think every uh, head in the room turned and looked at me like, are you crazy? Yeah, it takes a special I, kind of mama to say that. Not everybody no, does. But I, <laughs> no, but I was I was really genuine. Um Every time, uh, all three of the of my own children's births, I was ready to go. Just a few minutes afterward. Um, that's fantastic. So, tell me, we before the show started, we were talking a little bit about. You said you you wrote down and came out with your statistics. So you have had twelve births. Is that? I've had twelve children. Twelve children. Okay. Um, yeah, and uh, in preparing for the show, I actually thought to put some of these numbers down on paper, and I thought it was kind of interesting the way it all fell out. Uh, so I've had 12 children. Uh, I've had 11 births, and uh, I can give you a little bit more information about how those numbers work out uh, as we talk further. Sure. So I've had 12 children, 11 births. I've had nine vaginal births. I've had five VBACs. I've had five unmedicated births. I've had four inductions. I've had four births with epidurals. I've had three water births. I've had two sets of twins. I've had two C-sections, uh, two home births, two miscarriages, and one stillbirth. Wow. Yeah. So pretty much that, and also struggling with infertility, you know, prior to all this. So that really is a pretty wide, uh, wide point of view I, I come into this with. And it gives you a great amount of combinations because obviously these numbers, you know, you might have like an unmedicated that ended up being a VBAC or like they mix and match together to have all these experiences. Yes. Um, yes. Which what? Which one do you want to start with? Like, to tell me about, I, want, I don't want to say which one's your favorite because I'm sure that's not an accurate word for it. Hmm. Um well, I, I could, yeah, I'll definitely tell you about, yeah, you're right. It would be really hard to pick a favorite because I have incredible experiences with each one. And even the stillbirth, which was obviously, uh, uh, she had um, passed away um, prior to the birth. So it was an induction. Um, so it was not a surprise. Uh, How far along had... were you then? When, I when she passed months. away? Six months. I was six, six months. Okay. She had... Uh, a congenital heart problem as well as other uh, complicating issues. And so she passed away uh, and we ended up having an induction to deliver her. And, you know, although it was also the most horrible experience and the only time I ever cried in childbirth, the only time, um, it was also really just 
incredibly beautiful and um the hospital we were at just did a, a really spectacular job of of um handling it very um very peacefully and you know maybe one of the, my favorite part about that birth was that the the baby came uh, they weren't expecting me to, me to have her so quickly and it was just the nurse in the room and when she found out i was pushing um she ran out to get the doctor and i had delivered the baby before the doctor got back and i was pretty pretty proud of that fact that mm. <laughs> we could you know it, she was six months old about a pound and a half so she she pretty much just slid right out right um and al although she had passed it was really really pretty beautiful uh, to to share that experience with her and with her parents and my husband was, i was gonna ask you um, if the parents were present for that and how we, I recently yes. did a show about stillbirth specifically and, and it is an immense challenge, but one of the things that can be helpful is, you know, to spend time with the baby and take pictures and have mementos. And yes. how did that play yes. out for you guys? Yes, uh, exactly what you said. We were able to spend a lot of time with her several hours, um, because of her, known physical issues and they were also trying to find out if there were um, genetic issues present because this couple uh, had two prior children so they wanted to make sure that there was or, or at least find out if there was anything that they needed to be concerned about for their other two children um, or that perhaps their other two children might carry and pass on to their own so there was a, a large a long involved medical examination um, but aside from that, either I was holding the baby or my husband or the parents, um, we, it took, we spent several hours with her. My husband has always been the photographer at all of my surrogate births. And this was no exception. He took many, many, um, beautiful, sad pictures, um, including pictures of the parents. He really, he, he tried to be as respectful uh, of them as possible, of course, but he also captured some really beautiful images of them in their moments of grief with their baby. So it's, you know, it, it definitely the, the saddest part of my experiences, but definitely up there with, with one of the most beautiful. Right. Did they end up, have, now I'm curious about them, right? Did they end up mm -hmm. do, having another, doing more surrogacy with you or somebody else or... Do they they did know? not. Uh -huh. They did not because uh, we had used their last two embryos um, on the transfer that we conceived this baby. Mm -hmm. um, so they had no more embryos left. Um, their backstory was that um, they had a child themselves, um, which the mother carried and gave birth to, no problems. And then after the their first child was born, the mom was diagnosed with leukemia. And she was treated and was doing beautifully, expected to make a full recovery. However, she was on maintenance drugs that were not compatible with pregnancy. So um, they wanted a bigger family. So that's when um, they found me through a surrogacy agency. And I carried a baby for them. I had their their second child, and that was one of the home births that I had. Um, I had had a successful pregnancy and delivery with them. I delivered their daughter in um, in their home. 
with uh, a midwife. Um, and that was, you know, pretty amazing experience as well. Um, after they had that second child, they had, I believe, two embryos left at the fertility center. And about a year and a half later, they decided they wanted to try again for for baby number three. And uh, that's when I conceived their third child, um, the one who ultimately mm -hmm. passed away. Okay, so it's the other way around. You did carry a child for them, but there was the first time, the, the, so the yes. their second child, not the third. Interesting. While yes, listening exactly. to you, what comes up, and now I'm like, we will get to the birth stories, but now I'm thinking <laughs> about sure. the fertility process of can, that is very, something I'm very unfamiliar with of how do you become a surrogate? So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, you mean about the process of right of implanting, like what are medical process of getting pregnant with someone's baby right which, and is it just one standard way or are there different combinations that can happen uh well there are lots of lots of different combinations that can happen um the kind of surrogacy that i've done is called gestational surrogacy which means that i have no genetic link to the children the embryos are created with sperm from the father and eggs from the mother or I did carry for one gay couple. Uh, so in that case, they used an egg donor. Um, so sometimes you're not using the mother's egg or you might not be using the father's sperm, though in all cases I did use the, the father's sperm. Um, so I have no genetic link to any of these children, though I'm not sure if you've, if you've seen, there's been some recent research about the possible transfer of DNA information through amniotic fluid. Yes. Have you seen that? Yeah, that it gets yeah, all over your body. Yes. And I think it's something that surrogates have always felt inside them, that it's true that they carry a piece of these children with them forever. Um, and I can tell you that I think of all of these children that I've carried every single day. Um, I, of course, I live with my own three children. Uh, they're all still in the house. And they're part of my everyday reality, but then so are these other nine children. And not that I'm pining for them or wishing I could see them or talk to them, um, which I do. I do have contact with most of them. Um, but I do honestly feel that they're part of me, uh, probably as much as they might feel as they get older that I'm part of them in some way. So I thought that was interesting that recently there's more research coming out that's, that's showing that to be to be true yeah it's um, fascinating yeah it, it really is it really is and it also I think it, it in terms of surrogacy it brings up a whole new issue of screening you know I guess we'll see how this new development um, plays out but are there things that a surrogate should be screened for that might affect a child even though she's not genetically connected to them you know, are there things in the surrogate's health history that could possibly be transmitted in some way? Who knows? This is very right. new research, so it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. And then does it work the other way around? Is there, because it's the baby cells DNA yes. is also coming into your body. So is there, are you, or you're, you're done with your surrogacy, but would that be something right. to consider in screening the parents, I guess? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I will tell you, as 
a kind of, maybe I'm related, who knows? I have taken on the cravings of the parents during my pregnancy, my surrogate pregnancies. Okay, tell me more about that. Like, is it- Truly bizarre, truly bizarre, right? Do Um, they get- do they get cravings when you are pregnant or is it like the cravings they had no. in a previous pregnancy? No, I I would start craving some of the favorite foods that the, of the parents of the baby that I was carrying. Huh. Completely bizarre, right? The, the first time I noticed it, I wasn't very close to the first couple that I carried for. And we didn't really have that kind of relationship where we discussed anything like cravings. So I don't know if it happened during that pregnancy. But the sec- my second surrogate pregnancy, I was absolutely overtaken with a craving for Thai food. Um, and I had had Thai food before. I liked it fine. It was perfectly fine. It wasn't anything that I went out of my way to have. But those the parents loved Thai food and they would eat it very frequently. It was their favorite kind of food, and I just became obsessed with it when I was pregnant. And that has continued to this day. If I have, you know, any choice of any kind of food I would have, I would choose Thai. Um, Whereas prior to that pregnancy, it was just another choice out there, nothing particular. Um, Another time I carried for a, a couple and where he had a job where he had to get up very, very early in the morning. And so he drank coffee um, to get himself going. And I had never, never touched coffee ever, ever until, as you guessed it, (laughs) I got pregnant with his baby. And what a time to start craving coffee, right? The worst time. (laughs) The worst time. The worst time. But I did. um, I mean, I had decaf. I, I kind of experimented a little bit with coffee while I was pregnant, but it for the first time in my life, it it was appealing to me, uh, and I've kept that as well um, to this day. I really enjoy coffee, which I never touched until I had carried this man's baby. Huh. Um, there were other things too. At one point, um, you know, certain kinds of apples I would that I had never eaten before, and I started eating only that kind of apple during the pregnancy and. I mentioned it after I'd been eating this kind of app. I think it was Pink, Pink Ladies or something. I can't remember. But I'd mentioned it to the parents one time offhand in the doctor's office. And they'd looked at each other and laughed and said that was the only kind of apple that the father ate. The only kind he would touch. I wonder if this is really? like related at all to... In ge- you get moms that suddenly they like they never eat meat and suddenly they start craving meat right. during pregnancy. If it's something like that, that yeah. actually getting the cravings of the of the father, um, right? Interesting. Yeah. How very interesting. Yeah, I know, and I wouldn't really have believed it unless it happened repeatedly. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it stayed with me. You know, and that's the that's like the part that ties us to that research. It's one thing if I had been craving those foods while pregnant with their baby. But those those desires and cravings have stayed with me long after the fact. That's what makes it particularly intriguing to me that seems to corroborate that, that evidence about there being some sort of lasting DNA influence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Uh, like somebody need to go. Somebody needs to go and do some proper research on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some more. So, but going back to the birth stories, 
Mm-hmm. Or I, what I'm curious about is your experience in terms of. So recently, I I interviewed Pam England for the for the podcast to talk about healing your birth story, and she had a really interesting point about birth stories that we get really focused on the medical aspect of it, but not so much on what the transformation and the different mental and emotional states that moms need to go to to do birth. Mm-hmm. Having had all these varied experiences, do you find a commonality in what kind of what you need to go through to give birth? Hmm, good question. Um, it's it's interesting because as a surrogate, at least in the way I approach surrogacy, it was never just my birth. It was our birth. And by that, I mean me, obviously, um, the parents of the baby, and also my husband. You know, I think that there's that role or the partner, not, you know, not all surrogates have a husband. She may have a a same-sex partner. And so that person would obviously play that same role. But, you know, birth for everyone is a very sacred moment. Um, And in, in surrogacy, it's not only my birth or an experience I'm sharing with my husband, but it's an experience I'm sharing with another couple and at the same time trying to create beauty for that couple as well. Um, no matter what I'm going through, um, because I want them to remember it as, you know, one of the most amazing moments um, of their life. So yeah, it's definitely on my mind, and that's actually uh, one of the reasons I decided in my last um, two births, my the. Um, the last three births, I had epidurals. Um, the last two were healthy babies, healthy, easy delivery. The the one prior was the um, was the stillbirth, so I had an epidural during that. But it was one of the reasons that I chose to go the epidural route, um, even though I had had unmedicate plenty of unmedicated births, and I I enjoyed them. But what it took for me, or what what an ed- what an unmedicated birth requires of me is for me to be really inside my own head and inside my own heart, um, trying to manage the pain, trying to drown out sounds around me, um, sensations, smells. I just need to kind of be alone with myself in order to cope. And I felt that my coping strategies would not allow the parents to be part of the birth in a way that I wanted them to be able to experience. I I knew there was a high chance of me yelling at one of them or snapping at them, which I think probably happened anyway. And thankfully all the couples that I've carried for were gracious about it and realized that if it was in the moment that I snapped, um, it wasn't you know any sort of ill will. But I didn't want that to be the mode that I, I had to operate from for however long the labor took, three, four, five hours sometimes more. Um, I wanted to be able to share the beauty with them. And that was why I chose uh, to use epidurals when I did. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that's that's interesting to me because so my question was of that sort of that mental state you need to be in to give birth, given that you can have a great support team and you can have all these people around you, but ultimately you're the one doing the work. So I I think you indirectly answered my question (laughs) in that Uh the, the births that you had naturally, you needed to get into that different brain state of going internal and going safe and going um and it's interesting that you realize that that wasn't compatible so having them observe that wouldn't give them the best experience and you switched it around and went with an epidural so that they could um so that you could participate more on the external things going around you correct interesting um so you were talking about how long the births were and you said three four five hours sometimes more what about your first birth experiences it's like say your first one how long was that one um my first one was also an induction um i i had her just i think within a day or so of my due date um my uh water broke um during the night i guess and I called the doctor in the morning, uh, and no contractions had started. So I didn't know any better. Um, I didn't know that I could wait a little bit longer. I didn't have to report directly to the hospital. Um, but I did. So I went to the hospital and, uh, they started an induction, uh, right then and there. Whereas in subsequent pregnancies, I waited it out a little bit at home, sometimes as much uh, over a day. Um, so they started the induction, and I think it took eight hours, and that included an hour of pushing, which is really pretty quick when mm-hmm. you think about it um, for a first labor. Um, yeah, I mean, the induction proceeded pretty well. I think I knew at that point I would be getting an epidural because nothing hurts as much as Pitocin. <laughs> nothing. I maintain to this day, nothing hurts as much as Pitocin. How many times have you had Pitocin? Uh, four. 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 And for all of those fours, did you go with epidurals? Uh, yes. However, the, the last time, or no, I guess it wasn't the last time. Um, the second last time, which was the stillbirth, of course, I had to have the Pitocin Mm -hmm. to help me contract and deliver and they did an epidural, but I delivered her about five minutes later. So it, uh, it hadn't gone into effect yet. Gotcha. Now, the reason I'm asking is because you have a lot of experience that, and I want to make sure listeners listen to this because sometimes providers do go ahead and say, oh, no, Pitocin is just the same as your own contractions. It doesn't make things harder. Oh, no, <laughs> there's no comparison. There's no comparison whatsoever. Uh, What's the difference fact, in sensation? Um, <sighs> well, natural contractions co- uh, come on more slowly. Um, they, they build, I think they build more slowly. Um, 
in my experience, they don't feel like they grip as tightly, at least in the early parts of the labor. I mean, at the end, you know, as you're, as you're nearing transition and an actual birth, I mean, everything is tight, no matter what, if it's natural contractions or, or, or Pitocin, but, um, I I don't know. There may be something mental to it as well, that if it's your own body, you know, I, I guess I felt like I had a better coping mechanism over my own body rather than the, um, the Pitocin contractions. In fact, the, in my last birth, uh, which was two years ago, um, again, my water had broken during the night. And because the parents were a few hours away, they lived a few hours away, uh, I think we waited about six hours or so before we went to the hospital. And there, there were no contractions, nothing. Not, and it, this was his due date as well. So it's not like it was premature or anything. Um, and they said, okay, let's start Pitocin. And this is the midwife assisted birth. And so I asked for the epidural prior to the Pitocin because I knew what, what was in store. And I actually, I felt a little bit silly, like, oh my gosh, how could I be so silly as to ask for an epidural prior to Pitocin? But thankfully my midwife said, oh sure. Yeah, we can do that. No problem at all. Like, oh, thank you. I love you. I love you. Um, (laughs) That was also one where they really controlled the amount of the epidural as well. So it was not a painless birth. Uh, Whereas my first, I really didn't, I really didn't feel any pain at all. Maybe that's why I said 20 minutes later that I wanted to do it again. (laughs) I felt the the pressure and the relief, but I didn't feel any pain. Whereas the last time... um, I did. I definitely felt, uh, yeah, I definitely felt it the last time. Mm -hmm. And I think, so in the span of those years, I think they're giving more, I guess, epidurals that allow for more movement as well. And, and that might be why you feel more because it's not, the cocktail is not as numbing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think in most of the cases, I was not necessarily able to feel, have full feeling in my legs, but I could use them. You know, I remember the nurses being surprised after the fact when if they wanted to change the pad underneath me, this is, you know, sh- very shortly after the birth, that I would just be able to, I could lift up my bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that I remember them being surprised that that I was able to do that. So, yeah, I think that... Uh, the control, it seems like the control over, over the numbing is a little bit more, uh, finesse now. Yeah. That they have that ability to do that. I've had some epidural, um, births where mom's been able to squat. She's been able to go side to side, has even been able to do hands and knees, um, Mm -hmm. assisted and help, but supported. But you know, those are things you usually don't even, you think are out the window when you get an epidural. Right. You think of being strapped to the bed. And in in some cases you are. Yeah. I wanted to add one last thing to the Pitocin conversation before we move on is that, you know, you're telling us what your experience is, but there is actual research that points to the differences between Pitocin and your 
own body's mm-hmm. oxytocin, which is your oxytocin acts both as a neurotransmitter and as a hormone. So as a hormone, it brings down contractions. As a neurotransmitter, it signals the brain to send endorphins. Whereas pitocin actually blocks the receptors so it doesn't pass the brain blood barrier so the the brain never gets that signal and that's it makes sense when you're talking that it, they don't grip as hard um right because it it seems to be that there's more of a wave pattern to it where they they sort of cut the edge off the contraction at the beginning at the end those natural endorphins that you don't get with the pitocin right yeah definitely uh it's definitely a yeah more of a wave naturally than a you know a more discernible start and finish mm-hmm. when it's a, Sarah induction. Buckley just came out with a fantastic very long research on hormones during birth so mm-hmm. people can go check that out too um in terms of your experiences let's see what do I want to ask you <laughs> there's so many questions <laughs> So many questions. So what you mentioned with the other inductions, waiting longer to get to the hospital and be induced, that that was Mm -hmm. something that you learned about. What other things did you learn about along the way um, to make the birth process better for you? Well, I think the number one thing that I learned was to find a doctor who is a good ally for you that's willing to advocate for um, what you want and what you need, um, which often are the same thing. I can't say that they're always the same thing, but often. And I took great pains in finding the right uh, OB for me and switched three times. Um, I've switched practices three times. The first time was when I had my own children. Um, And they were fine. Uh, That's all I can say. (laughs) They were fine. (laughs) Um, And my third child was born at home with a midwife. Um, And so when I was pregnant with the first surrogate pregnancy, I went back to that practice and I had, I was pregnant with twins and, um, I didn't like the, their approach, even though they were nice women, they, you know, they were very kind, but I felt like they regarded me as a walking lawsuit. Um, I'm not sure that they'd ever had a surrogacy arrangement before. And I think they thought, oh, my goodness, now here's this woman. She's pregnant with these someone's babies, and it's twins, and oh, my goodness. And they kind of just started treating me as if I was high risk. And I wasn't. I was anything but high risk. Uh, and that hit, that hit me wrong, as well as um, the, the mom, the, the baby's mother, was with me. And she didn't appreciate that either. Uh, so we interviewed several practices until we found one that was a good fit. And it was um, an older man from Argentina. His English was difficult to understand, but um, he just had a beautiful perspective on birth and, and believed in me. Um, 
And so I stayed with that practice until I got pregnant the next time and that man had retired. Um, and so I needed to find another man, another doctor. Um, and I called my midwife and asked for suggestions and ultimately found another man uh, from Guyana who has... English was even more difficult to understand. (laughs) Maybe there's something about, you know, people who have a non-Americanized view of birth as their primary picture. You know, I can't say that with any certainty. I can only say what happened to me, but I've dwelled on that quite a bit of, you know, people growing up in a, with a possibly a different view of, of natural birth. Um, And that, and I've stayed with that man um, since, except for the, the one time uh, that the couple did want a home birth and then we went back to my midwife and we used her for the home birth. Um, but that's been my, what I believe is the most important part of this whole process is finding someone who believed in me and had believed that I was low risk and didn't think that the situation itself warranted, uh, treatment as high risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you ever, I, I guess you that kind of answers my question in terms of were you ever placed as a high risk category for your age? Never, mm-hmm. never. And I had my, the last baby I had, uh, I was 45. So never, not once. Um, or even, you know, having had so many previous births, um, never. I was very lucky that my doctor um, viewed me as an individual. He was very familiar with my history and said that, you know, the chances of anything going wrong were very, very slim. And, you know, thankfully nothing ever did go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. right. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, you've had two sets of twins. Tell me a little bit about twin delivery. How, yeah, explain to us. Yeah, those were both C-section. Um, however, um, so the first birth, uh, I had twin girls and I went into labor. I was 39 and a half weeks. Um, wow. That's a long time carrying twins. Long time. Or no, I'm sorry. 39. I was 39 weeks. Still. It was 39 weeks. Yeah. Right. 39 weeks. And I went into labor. Uh, we went to the hospital and I delivered the first baby vaginally in the tub, um, which was not a birthing tub. It was a labor tub. But, you know, you give me a tub of water and I'm in labor, that's going to be where I'm going to have the baby. (laughs) Um, So we kind of slipped, I kind of slipped her out in the water uh, and it was fine. Everything was fine. Um, And then, of course, they were on to me and they made me get up and get out of the tub and move on to the table. Um, and, and when I got to the hospital that day, that night, I guess it was a night, um, both babies were vertex. So the first one came out easily. No problem. She was six pounds, nine ounces. She slid out fine. Um, the second one, after I got up and went to the, um, the exam table, she turned and she went, yeah, she went, um, transverse. And the doctor could feel from the outside, you know, he could feel that he was, she was transverse. So he tried very gently to coax her back down to vertex 
and she wouldn't go and wouldn't go and wouldn't go. Um, probably another hour or so went by, um, and he tried again. And at this point, when he went to, he tried, he said, you know, are you willing to try an internal version? And I, this is all unmedicated at this point. Uh, I said, you know, I'll try anything. And so when he went to put his, his hand up me, he found her hand and her foot were presenting. Mm. So she was really trying to come out sideways. Um, and, you know, I could see his face. He was thinking over, what are we going to do here? She, she really, she couldn't be moved because of her hand and foot. Um, and so he was taking a breather. I was taking a breather. And um, he, you know, he broke it to me. You know, I think we're going to have to do a C-section. So we moved to the operating room. And as I sat up, um, I just was gushing blood, like gushing blood, like there was no tomorrow. Um, and all of a sudden it became an emergency. And I really honestly don't remember a lot that happened after that. I remember kind of being knocked out pretty quickly. And my husband was like overwhelmed. And so he had to leave the room and parents weren't in the room. Um, and I remember... I vaguely remember seeing the baby go by, but I, I really just remember waking up afterwards. Um, so that was pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. Very intense. I mean, it was an emergency. So, and I don't fault the doctor one bit. You know, he was really walking a fine line between taking quick action and honoring what he knew was really, really important to me. And so even though it ended up with a not so great outcome, um, I mean, the babies were fine. They were perfectly healthy. They left the hospital two days later. Um, I, however, was in the hospital for five days because it was pretty, uh, pretty grueling delivery for me. Um, but I was really grateful that he, he, he knew how important it was to have, um, a beautiful birth and, and on as many terms of my own as possible. Um, so, you know, it wasn't that great of an experience, but I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then my second uh, C-section was my next delivery, which was also twins. Um, these babies never were vertex. Never. We never saw them. Maybe, maybe when I was like five or six months pregnant, maybe. So Vertex, um, I wanted to, I, I hate to interrupt you. I kept meaning, I was like, should I interrupt yeah. her before? Should I interrupt her? Oh, yeah. So Vertex is head down. Head down. Yes. 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 They were never head down. Um, and I had tried a number of um, techniques to try and get them to turn, including, you know, peas on the top part of my uterus to chill their heads to get them to go down, mm -hmm. putting light down below. I tried inverting on um, like a slant board. I even did the Webster technique, which is uh, acupuncture um, on the on the feet. Uh, so it and it doesn't even use needles, actually. It's with it's heat on the, the moxibustion. Yeah. Yep. I did that or or no, the Webster technique is chiropractic, right. right? I'm getting my techniques. Yes. I saw a chiropractor to do the Webster technique. Nothing helped. However, I did cause myself a lot of pain because the babies did try to move. They mm -hmm. tried, but they were, um, they were big. They were bigger than we, uh, than we expected. 
Um, so I went into labor at 37 and a half weeks, which is still great for twins. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I went into labor. Um, we went to the hospital. My, do- my doctor, bless his heart, said, well, let's take a look, you know, just on the off chance that they had righted themselves head down. But no, they were still transverse, just as they had been for months. Um, and so we had, we did a C-section and it was, you know, it was a really good experience. Um, it's a totally different experience having a calm, controlled, not necessarily planned, even though it wasn't a surprise for me. We didn't, we were holding out hope that something was going to happen, but I did go into labor, um, rather than planning a date. Um, but it was really, it was a nice experience as nice as you can have when you're having major surgery. Um, so they were they were both born by C-section. They're completely healthy. The first twin was seven pounds, eight ounces. Wow. And the second twin was seven pounds, nine ounces. <laughs> Those are big twins. Is, yeah, yeah. I think Which my is, daughter was seven, seven, six when she was born. Yeah. <laughs> Just the one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I had a seven, three. My first was seven, three. Um, you know, so that explains why they didn't turn. They just didn't have room. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, you know, it was a, a, it was a nice delivery. The recovery was very easy, very, very easy. Now I have to give a caveat to that to listeners because, you know, I don't want to give the impression that all C-section recoveries are easy because they're not. I, my first one was rough. But you also have to take into account that I my only job was to recover from surgery. It was not taking care of one baby or two babies. You know, it's I've not had a, a C-section for my own child. So I can't say what that experience is like. I'm sure it's got to be exhausting and painful and difficult. So by saying, oh, it was easy. I had no problem. Well, all I had to do was lay in the bed and smile and read magazines and take some good drugs that I wouldn't be able to take if I was, if I was breastfeeding. Yeah. Um, I hadn't even considered. It's a completely different situation. Obviously I hadn't even considered in my mind that your recoveries are completely different. Recovering from pregnancy when you don't, well, aren't taking a baby home. Of course. Yes. Yes. You know, people are amazed at just how fast I bounce back and I have to say well you know I have the baby and then I lay in bed in the hospital for what a day a day and a half I come home take a shower crawl into my bed sleep for another day or so and I'm pretty much back ready to join the rest of the world you know I'm not running marathons or anything like that but certainly I'm fine to make a quick run to the grocery store or, uh, you know, what do you do? Whatever. Do you do anything specific to, to deal with your breast milk? It does it not come in. It does. Oh yes, it does. <laughs> um, well, one time I nursed the baby, um, the, the baby that I had at the parents' house, the home birth, I nursed her for about three days at their house and then I pumped for her for five months. And so that was that was incredible. That was just a really incredible experience. 
another baby I nursed in the hospital until she was discharged. And that was beautiful as well. My None of my children were particularly skilled at nursing. So I didn't have a great nursing experience. It was very painful. Um, and so it, it was very healing for me to nurse those two babies. And those two babies were both just natural, beautiful nursers. And it was just an, such a different experience. And it helped resolve a lot of guilt uh, and grief on my part that I'd somehow uh, not served my children well by struggling through our nursing relationship. It made me realize it was more about the baby or us as a nursing couple than it was about me doing a bad job because I had a good experience with those other two. Right. It um, is a partnership yeah. for sure. It is. It is. And I think we tend to lose sight of that, particularly when it's not going well. Um, for the other ones that I didn't nurse, um, yeah, your milk comes in. There's no real way around it. Um, and it's painful and it's messy. Um, but, you know, as they say, where you, I wore a tight sports bra. Um, you can use, you know, I used pads to kind of take care of the leaking. Um and, you know, you just kind of grin and bear it. You know, your breasts are large and rock hard, but, you know, just try, <laughs> trying not to pay too much attention to it. But it does subside in, oh, I'd say two or three days. Once your milk comes in and you're really engorged, it's it's probably mostly subsided in about two or three days. So it's it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some, some surrogates opt, elect to, um, if they're, parent if the parents they carried for do not want the breast milk they will donate the breast milk so that's a pretty neat thing too yes and, and to milk banks and and we've yes. i actually did a, a, an episode on on milk banking um mm-hmm. which especially if by any chance you have preemie milk you know yeah. that is more than gold it saves tons of lives and it's highly needed <laughs> yeah yeah Tell me what's so amazing for you about water births. Oh, um, a lot of it's the heat, the warmth of the water. Um, I'm just a a heat-seeking creature. I love anything warm, you know, warm blankets, warm weather, warm water, anything warm. So for me, the heat of the water is um is very soothing um i think the hydrostatic pressure of the water is helpful as well um there may also be something to the physical input you know you're getting information being surrounded by the water and because that's a comforting feeling for me i'm taking in you know comforting experiences by feeling the warmth and and the pressure of the water whereas I don't get much out of the experience of sitting in a hospital bed in a hospital gown strapped up to to machines and wires um you know also being in the water you know you you don't have an IV you don't nobody's monitoring you other than you know midwife is checking the baby's heart rate now and then um there's no machine there are no machines that are beeping at you it's generally dark, you know, the lights are often dim. Um, you have space. You know, if you're in a birthing tub, the two times that I had 
home births at home with in the birthing tub, you have this actually, you know, delineated space around you uh, because of the dimensions of the tub. And I've also found that comforting. You know, nobody could get too close to me because I don't appreciate being touched or having people too close to me um, until I'm actually pushing the baby out. Then, you know, then I want the parents to be really close and experiencing everything together. Mm -hmm. Are there, so water is a great comfort measure for you. Any other things that work really well that you've found in your experiences (laughs) (laughs) are really good for birthing? Um, I mean, for me, socks, I have to have socks on no matter what. I mean, unless I'm in the water, obviously, but socks, because I don't like my feet feeling cold. That's very stressful to me, like the feeling of cold feet. So, you know, people would always try to pull my socks off. I'd be like, no, no. Even sometimes when they'd be covered in blood, like, no, don't take my socks. Um, So I learned over the years to make sure I had plenty of pairs of socks with me. Um. Standing was always helpful to me until I got so far into the labor that I that I couldn't safely stand anymore. Um, I always prefer to labor standing up and sometimes leaning over, you know, leaning over a chair or even leaning over the bed. Um, quiet. I definitely do not want people talking to me um, in the middle of a contraction, um, even music. Um, nothing. I just need, I need quiet. Um, what else? Um, you know, my, my husband, of course, is a good (laughs) comfort to me and he knows to, and he, 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 he's always done a great job with, with the baby's parents of running interference. You know, if I, if I was shooting somebody a dirty look that maybe they didn't pick up on, my husband would always jump in and say, just give her a minute. She'll let you know when she can talk. You know, he was always really good. He's always been um, an incredible advocate for me, um, which I actually wrote about and performed, if if you've heard or any of your listeners have heard of Listen to Your Mother. Um, it's a nationally syndicated stage show of women who've written essays about motherhood and not necessarily mothers themselves sometimes it may be about their own mother or uh, a mother mothering type experience and they're performed on um, live across the country in the springtime and I was honored to be selected as part of the Washington DC cast of listen to your mother this past year and the essay that I delivered was about um, the stillbirth delivery, and ultimately about my husband's role in making it such a redemptive, beautiful experience. So he's definitely, uh, interestingly, I'll, I'll back up. Interestingly, he's definitely my secret comfort weapon in the surrogate deliveries. But in my own deliveries, um, I really felt it was more of a personal experience. Of course, I wanted him to share it, but I didn't really want to rely on him. I wanted him to have his own birth experience. Mm-hmm. Did you ever, for your own experiences of, or the surrogacy, have a doula? Um, I did not, though I planned on it. Okay. Um, when, oh, wait, you know what? That's wrong. For my first surrogacy, 
which was the, the set of twins that was a vaginal birth and a C-section, my midwife did come to the hospital with me to act, and she was a home birth midwife, strictly. She, had, she did not have hospital privileges. Um, she did accompany me to the hospital to act as my doula, and she was the one that helped me have that baby in the tub um, against the rules. Um, and my husband reports that the look on her face when that happened was like the cat that ate the canary, uh, which I thought was great that she helped me achieve what I wanted was to have that baby in the tub. Um, and then once they took me for the C-section, she left. Um, we hired her again, the second for the next pregnancy, which was also the set of twins, which I knew I was going to have in the hospital, but I did, we did retain her for the, um, as a doula. And, but when I went into labor, um, I called, she was the first person I called. Um, and she talked me through and said, yeah, I think this is it. I think that you're, you know, I can hear in the tone of your voice, you're this, this is not pre, you know, you're, you're really in labor. You're going to have these babies soon. Um, and I, she lived about an hour and a half away from us. So it wasn't, uh, she wasn't very close. So I told her that when we get to the hospital and we found out what was going on, I'd give her a call. And when we saw that they were still transverse, I told her not to bother coming. Um, I didn't want her to have to drive all that way when I knew I was going to have a C-section. Um, and then she is the person that attended the, um, the home birth that I had, the surrogate home birth, where she... She really acts more like a doula in that case, you know, just kind of sitting back, watching, saying whatever needs to be said, but nothing more, uh, which I thought was really beautiful about about the way she worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems you have a really good special bond with her as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We intended on using her again um, for the, the baby that ended up being stillborn. Our intention was to have a home birth with her as well. But once we we found out that she had um, such grave problems, we knew that that was not an option anymore. Right. And I'm guessing because we didn't mention it in the statistics, you haven't had a breech delivery. I have not. I have not. Mm -hmm. No. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think you've covered a lot. It's okay not to have yeah. the one or two things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now my doctor, my OB, does at the time that I was delivering babies, he did say that he would do breech um, deliveries. Um, I don't know if that's changed. I, I know his views probably haven't had changed, but as we know, the insurance and litigious factors have cha changed rapidly over the years. Um, They're bringing it back in Canada. Really? Yeah, they, in in medical school, they're starting to do um, teach breech deliveries because they've found that the risk nowadays, in terms of you know being in a hospital and having the possibility of C section, that it's not that it's not as risky if you have the knowledge, right? What makes it riskier is not having the knowledge of how to deliver a breech. Right. Yeah. 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 I can't speak to that one, thankfully. <laughs> You you spoke to a traverse transverse, um, yeah. Intent, forget. Is there anything else like now that we've spent this hour going over your experiences and they're fresher in your mind? Is there anything mm -hmm. else that you want to share or that you're thinking about or that you'd like to tell the listeners? Um, I guess I would say what. 
what was always really helpful for me was research, 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 and maybe a little more research. And by research, I don't mean studies and statistics and medical journals. I mean getting a wide range of, of points of view on birth, um, a wide range of experiences, and especially hear from people who it's gone well for. You know, we tend to hear more of the horror stories than the success stories. Um, and I guess I felt, I've, I do feel that the reason I've been so at peace with all of the different ways that I've had um, these babies is that I felt like whatever came to pass was an informed decision on my part and that I actually had a role in making the decisions. Now, there was one point in the second last baby I had in 2011 when um, my doctor, who's really an easygoing guy that completely trusts my body, said to me, you need to deliver this baby now. And, you know, I was like, yeah, like some doctor's going to tell me that I need to just push out this baby just like that. I don't think so, is, you know, what I'm thinking in my labor haze. Mm -hmm. But he's like, no, you need to push this baby out now. And I said, I don't have the urge to push. He's like, push anyway. And as it turned out, um, she had a lot of meconium. The fluid was very, very dirty. And when she came out, she was she was kind of in rough shape. Um, we barely got to see her. They had to um, resuscitate her with um, the bag oxygen. Mm -hmm. It was, she was okay. They assured us you know, she was, she was okay. But, um, I realized that he was letting me know I knew when he was, when he had said that the second time, push her out now, I knew it was do or die. And, and not in a literal sense, I guess I meant, I knew I needed to push her out now, or they were going to section me really quickly, which I did not want. Um, and so I did, it's the only time that I've ever done that. I've always said that I don't really um, push the babies out so much as let them come out. But that time I was pushing as hard as I could to get that baby out. Um, but I knew, I, I knew him enough that he would never have said that to me unless it was really a serious situation. So we had established enough trust between us. And I, you know, I don't know that most women have that kind of relationship or that kind of knowledge of, with their care providers, maybe more with midwives than with OBs who tend to have maybe less of a personal relationship. Um, but knowing what I knew that it had to be pretty serious um, allowed me to put my trust in him um, as well as trusting my body, but trusting him. So I guess that boils down to, um, find out as absolute much as you can about normal, natural, happy, healthy births, as, as well as what can go wrong, um, so that you can be part of the decisions about your care in the heat of the moment, you know, as much as possible. There are times like the time that I had the um, emergency C-section that I really had no say in that. But other than that, I've always been part of the conversation. And I think that's because I've educated myself about the process. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about the pushing phase and and how 
I don't know if I'd say best to push a baby out or what that's for. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when we research and we look through and if you haven't had a baby, you know that the first part, labor, is about things happening and waiting for things to happen, waiting to get to 10 mm-hmm. and have that urge. But how... Yeah, tell me about your pushing experiences. Um, I don't know. I never felt good trying to push without having the urge to push. Um, and I guess I've had it happen enough that I've been able to feel the baby descend and kind of make that curve around the pubic bone. I've, I've been conscious of that all the time and waiting for that overwhelming urge when all you, you know, you kind of let out this primal grunt, which is the signal to, okay, she's ready to push this baby out. Um, I guess I felt like I'm, I've always waited for my body to tell me when to push rather than um, wait for someone else to tell me to push. Now, I will say, though, the last, the last birth I had two years ago, um, my midwife was it, – it was a midwife that was part of my OB's practice. And my midwife happened – the midwife happened to be on call that day, and I really liked her. So I was really happy that she was the one to help us, um, different from the home birth midwife that I used earlier. Um, but I know she was very respectful of not having me have to put my knees in the air and somebody holding my feet. And she wanted me to feel natural and comfortable. But I really wasn't able to to push very well until a nurse suggested, why don't you put your knees in the air, like in a typical stirrup position? Um, why don't you try that? And it just, it felt so much better and so much more efficient. And I was able to push him out, whereas before... You know, he just wasn't wiggling himself out. I, I didn't have enough urge and enough strength. Um, so for the most part, I'd say I really, what I, what I feel is important to me is to allow my body to tell me when to push rather than waiting on external cues. So were you saying that you feel the baby descend and go past the pubic bone before starting to push? Oh, uh, before I'm getting sorry, the urge? The, the, I'm sorry, there was a little beep and I didn't hear all of your question. Right. So were you saying at the beginning that you feel the baby descend and, you know, pass sort of navigate that curve, the pubic bone before you get the urge to push? Yes. 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 I feel the baby drop down and really descend low. Um, I mean, I maybe feel some squeezing, but definitely I do not feel the urge to actually bear down and push until after I felt that, that dropping. That's really interesting because it's like, all... I can, I can, I can still picture it, you know, I can yeah. still, at the time that it was, that it happens, you know, I just get this visual in my head of the baby making that path and I can still picture all the times that the baby has made that path down out of it's. It's like it's just part of who who you are. Well, because I, what I find happens a lot in, in 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 hospital birth, especially if mom's has an epidural and is on her back, that there's all this that directed pushing to get the baby to pass the pubic bone, right. and there's all this effort done before 
because right. once the baby passes that pubic bone, then it's yeah. quite soon. Right. Yep. So your provider never or like I'm trying to figure out like how that happens, <laughs> how how quote unquote you're allowed to um, just just from my experiences of what usually happens in the process um, at the hospital um, that the minute the mom says, well, I feel pressure, I feel like I need to push, then it's a just do the dude, regardless of where be, where baby is in that process. Mm. And I don't think I've heard this that you're describing to me, but I love it. Mm. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, I it may just be one of the quirks of my body <laughs> um, that, you know, my second child, the second birth I had, which is my son, um, we were racing to the hospital and I actually, I was, I did not have the urge to push though. I knew we were getting close and I felt him descend. Um, and I was basically pushing him out on the way into the hospital. But, um, yeah, since that point, since that I did, I can't say that I felt that with my first, when I had the, um, the induction, it was the first time I didn't know what I was experiencing, but the second time when I felt him descend and come around my pubic bone. Since then, I've always felt it. Yeah. That's I, fantastic. I don't know. Maybe it's not it, Maybe it's not the norm. I'm not sure. Well, I recently read something about it, and I was like, huh. And then you, you know how serendipity happens, and then once you something comes up, another thing related to it comes up, and I don't know if I'm just seeing it more. <laughs> but I'm going to look more into yeah. that. <laughs> that sounds like a way easier way to do the pushing thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Susan, it's been such a delight talking to you. We could do this for hours and hours. I'm like, this is probably going to be the longest episode so far. <laughs> but I Thank am. It's, it's been really fun. Oh, so grateful. If people want to hear more of what you've got to say and follow what you're doing, what can, where can they contact you? Uh, well, I have um, a website that is specific to surrogacy, and it's called surrogacybydesign.com. Um, and the email that's associated with that is surrogacybydesign at gmail.com. Um, this is my second website. I do have another one, which predated that one called Fuller by Design. And that on that website, I blog more about mothering and parenting, um, creative things, some things about birth, um, a little bit about surrogacy, but about surrogacy from the perspective of, of the birth experience, not about surrogacy per se. Um, so people can find me through fullerbydesign.com as well. Fantastic. And you have a book or did, is it coming out or do you already have the I book? I do. It's out. Um, I'm working on a second one, which is a memoir about my surrogacy experiences. But there is one that's out now called Successful Surrogacy, an intended parent's guide to regroup to a rewarding relationship with their surrogate mother. And it's really about the relationship aspects and this journey that you ca that you uh, walk together and how the intended parents and the surrogate mother can work together um, to make it a beautiful experience for everyone. And that's available on Amazon. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again for doing this, for sharing so much of your experiences with us. And best of luck with that new book. I will look for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was great. Uh, great talking to you today.
Mamas, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Stay in touch by following Birthful on Facebook or Twitter. And even better, become a part of the Birthful community by subscribing at birthful.com. You'll get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive goodies. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Mighty One, did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.